After all this, you still... I still want that gas, yes. And you had better deliver. Well, welcome back, listeners. Um, I'm joined by a returning guest, Zarif. Hi, everyone. It's good to be back on the pod. Thank you for having me, Aditya. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really glad we were um, we were able to get you because I I felt like this would be a good space to continue on some of the topics we discussed the last time you were on, um, and especially with like what happened this week, I think you know it will be tough. So, listeners, please be advised. This could be this again to some sensitive areas. I think it's worth talking about them. I think it's worth hearing about them. But if you need to take a second, I'm not going to judge. Um, yeah, um, you know, Adi and I, uh, you know, we're going to delve into some very, um, you know, I would say dark stuff and the reasons for why these happenings in the Asian American communities, these attacks that have been happening constantly day in and day out. I've been hearing about multiple ever since COVID and not even just COVID, there is a long history of anti-Asian racism in this country, which we're going to get into, of course. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess let's start with the instigating event, right? Which was uh, the shooting in Atlanta. Um, and I mean, as soon as it was reported, I'm going to be honest, like, I didn't even have the capacity to feel like... Um, outrage or confusion or sadness like some people can these days i think just I, I, my mind has kind of been numb probably since uh the michael brown shooting in like 2014 or even like the aurora colorado shooting like it just it happens so fucking frequently these days that I, i'll just look at the article i'll see the guy's face you look at the victims and it's like before you or at least i don't know when i was younger i felt like i could be more angry about it now i just i'm numb in a way that worries it, me what a sad state of affairs in, in this country yeah well let's that we've become numb to that <laughs> so how about we talk about the numbing event right um so this guy shoots up a asian massage parlor uh in his confession says that he had a sex addiction, which is why he shot up the place. Um, and the bulk of the victims happened to be um, Asian who worked at the massage parlor and happened to all be women happened to all be Asian women. Correct. Yes. Um, and there were also other uh, uh, individuals that had their lives lost as well. Right. Um, I believe there was an Indian male and I think there was like another like Latino male as well. Who were clients, right? Yeah, they were clients. Yep. Yeah. And you know, people go, you know, I think a lot of people have stereotypes of these massage parlors of, you know, like the typical like, oh, happy ending and this blah, blah, blah. But, you know, a lot of people just like going to these massage parlors because, you know, maybe they might be just having a stressful ass day, you know? And then they just like wanted to like you know let loose, uh, or that's their way of letting loose. You know, um, I remember watching one of the um, news segments about the Atlanta shootings, and one of the clientele uh, who was close, who was particularly close to one of the individuals that lost their lives, says, you know, I I loved going to this you know store whenever I've had a bad day or you know my muscles are feeling tense or anything. You know, like these are stores that were tied to their communities. Like, let's not forget. 
and it, and it kind of goes to show that like you know it's it's a kind of get your mind out of the gutter effect where like just because it's an asian massage parlor uh they they're probably turning tricks in there i don't i don't get what that's about but at the same time like because there's so many urban legends in a lot of cities about some of these places or even where it's kind of like uh not enforced by the police um it's one of those weird areas of sex work and you know the massage business that everyone just kind of you know laughs about in their heads but it it manifested in something pretty tragic today and also just just something that i find odd in how the police response to this event uh went down oh my was was like well he was having a bad day and uh well he shot he shot women so he can't just mean it was a race thing and i'm like and, and maybe maybe there's you know, it's not the exact uh, nexus or next point in a sequence of uh, anti-Asian violence, but there, there's something very very sick about what happened. Oh, absolutely! And to really, you can't really um, separate the gender or the race part of this, in my opinion. Like what the police officer did, right? You know, the angle he kind of took. Um, I think they work very well, you know, uh, the stereotype against Asian women as that they're docile, they're meek, and not able to defend themselves, need someone strong to help them, you know, and all, I, and I think a lot of this has to do with what we saw on um, Tuesday night, is that, that's when it happened, correct? Was it Tuesday night? I believe so, I'm, yeah. I'm still kind of reeling, I, I don't have the, I don't have the details as handy in my head as I'd like. Um, but, but yeah, I think really what's, what's gotten people in an uproar about it is the fact that the police, you know, kind of just threw their hands up and said, Hey, it happened. What are you going to do about it? And it's, it's, it, it's, it's frustrating because every time there's some kind of um, mass shooting like this, I, does this qualify as a mass shooting? I'm not sure. Uh, oh, it's a mass shooting. I, I don't e- I don't even see like the anti gun crowd or the pro gun crowd talking about this anymore. Like they they've just like thrown their hands up on this, and it's just turned into well he had a bad day. What are you going to do about it? I I don't know. I I cannot believe that you um, get thirty dollars at Taco Bell sh- on a bad day. You don't fucking the sheriff's off. Was it the sheriff's captain or something that said that? It was a deputy that, like, sheriff or something bad, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was having a bad day, and you know uh, I heard later on. Uh, I read somewhere that like he was actually he he posted anti-Asian sentiment. Well, like, the cop did. The, yeah, the cop did. Yeah, the shooter. I mean, there was a there was an alleged screenshot of it, and it was it would have wrapped everything nicely in a bow. But according to Snopes, uh, he didn't post that. Oh, there was something else out there by by the shooter. Yeah, allegedly. That's what you're saying? Yeah, there was allegedly oh, something oh, out there by the shooter, but okay. they had they they disproved that. Oh, okay. So like someone just like photoshopped a screenshot or something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Damn, people doing it these days. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so that that's the event that prompted this episode. But Zarif, I know, like uh, last episode you were on, you said you'd been doing some research on some of these. Uh, this wave of attacks. So as far as I remember you saying it was mostly on the West coast, is that correct? Um, actually, you know, now I would say, you know, for 
my Asian friends, my Asian brothers and sisters, especially for, um, look after your elderly anywhere in this country. But obviously, you know, these attacks are happening in the West Coast. Uh, uh, California has a lot of Asians. Um, that goes without saying. Um, they are happening in New York City. Um, I've heard about a couple in Philadelphia. I've heard about some in Baltimore. Um, I've heard about some, obviously, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Now, when there was, a, I think there was an incident before this one in Atlanta previously um, during COVID. Um, like, I could go on and on. And a, the organization AAPI, like AAPI Against Hate, um, they've estimated 2,900 plus hate, hate crimes ever since COVID. And those are just reported. Like, think about how many underreport, like, there are that are unreported. Right. And I say that because we come from, you know, Asian backgrounds. South Asian, yes, but I do think there are similarities in the way that, you know, we also tell our, um, especially the immigrant generation, they tell us to, like, kind of, you know, be quiet and, you know, put our heads down and, you know, listen and, you know, not to make noise or take space. And I think that's why there's a lot of under or non-reported hate crimes i think that number the 2900 plus number is a lot higher in reality yeah that's that's likely um and i mean you you touched on that pretty well that like you know the asian community is a little likely to underreport some of these instances of violence um but it, it it's one of those things that i'm not sure if we can even view this event as part of the chain of events but because it happened you know, the connections there at this point, that's how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. But you're right that like, it was generally like uh, the elderly who got attacked in this, in these waves, often in like high populace, uh, high population density areas. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, at least in the modern or this very recent context, I think you're right that um, COVID or more rather how Trump and even to, I mean, I, I'm going to be honest Biden in response to Trump, yeah, everyone, absolutely 100%. everyone engaged in Democrats are responsible for the xenophobia. Well, yeah, it's it is it is xenophobia. It is anti-Asian sentiment. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. to me, at least um, it's this last. Well, it's not a last gasp, but it's, you know, a death ro- a rattle of this post Soviet uh, animosity that America has had where. We've kind of never really had um, a concrete enemy that we could otherize like the Soviets. And to me, like, you know, that's how we that's how the Bush administration dealt with um, the conflict in the Middle East is, you know, try to take all these nebulous groups that are kind of not as solidified as the Soviet Union and try to apply Soviet um, strategies against them. And they're doing the same thing with China. They're trying to treat China like it's the new USSR when it's not exactly the same threat. They're not hostile in the same ways. Uh, or actually, to be honest, the Soviets weren't really hostile either. There's a lot of Cold War propaganda regarding that. But China, when it comes to the COVID-19, that fucking conspiracy theory of China um, originating the virus and spreading it here, it it runs counter to fucking everything. It runs counter to reality. Oh. Because yeah, because what yeah. would they gain from uh what what would they gain from like wiping out Wuhan and people think talk about Wuhan like it was a, a shit show. Wuhan, oh, Wuhan is a major was... industrial center in China. 
Yep. GM China is based out of there. Ford China is based out of there. And something that we don't talk about when it comes to uh, business culture in uh, Asian countries, they're actually very hands-on when it comes to having people from their divisions go to like places that are outsourced or places that are like international divisions of their companies. And I know that growing up in India, like um, Hyundai, the Korean car manufacturer, was big there, right? And a lot of the uh, Korean kids I went to school with um, were children of those Korean expats who were like sent over to supervise the different facilities that were set up in India, right? And the same business culture exists in China to an extent. So, you know, folks were traveling to and from Wuhan and probably, you know, that may have been one route of, of uh, the transmission of the virus, right? But that's incidental. That's, that, that, that's incidental. I don't really think anyone saw that coming, especially when there was, um, I don't know if you saw this report. It was very underreported when I read it, was the actual source of the virus when they traced it back was closer to Fiji. Oh, what? No, I did not read about that. Yeah, yeah. I've not so, heard about that at all. So again, like um, <laughs> epidemiology is the one tool, and like pandemic response, these two like disciplines, which would have been instrumental in um, how we understand COVID nineteen and how we fight back against it. These are the ones that uh, have either been like, I mean, the pandemic response team, because you've heard that report that uh, the Trump administration willfully defunded the pandemic response center. Oh, at the, absolutely. Right. And so it was, it's just an absolute disaster. It's a, it's an absolute disaster in that regard. And then when it comes to epidemiology, I mean, first of all, no one can really travel and do the, the field research. So that may have affected some of this. But I mean, you know, they find out after the fact it was Fiji and no one's talking about it. Everyone still wants to. Uh, <laughs> Everyone still wants to blame China for this, which <laughs> I, mean, I just. I- what would they get? What would they get? The Chinese economy and the U.S. economy is so fucking intertwined and in such an incestuous manner. They're not going to get anything from blowing this up. We're not oh, going to get anything from blowing it up, but we're fucking like Yosemite Sam in an old Looney Tunes cartoon. Just like blow this shit up. <laughs> Honestly, do you think China is going to have us by the balls by like 2030? It, well, that's the question is like what does having us by the balls look like? Because like I, economically – I, like here's to the point where they'll be able to play play sanctions on us if they really wanted to. I mean, it would it would be karmic if that happened, right? But the thing is, when people talk about China gaining dominance, the implied uh, sentimentality of that uh, position is that China just took the aggressive. They're trying to uh, come at uh, being the new world hegemon, and that it's a wrong thing to do, which. I'm sorry. I, to this day, I still don't get why America should be in charge. The case has oh, not no, yet been made not. for that. But, no, we should not. But, I mean, to be honest, when it comes to how, I mean, as a result of Reagan, Carter, and Clinton, right, how America has just willfully thrown away so much of its supply chain and its production systems uh, by result of NAFTA, by outsourcing to China, by doing all of this shit, right? Um it's not like we have our, you know, balls in a vice grip. It's more like we kind of just put them in China's hands and said, hey, keep them for safekeeping. 
It doesn't help. Right. It doesn't fucking help that like uh, everyone wants to cry foul now, because it's it just like it's a way to shift the blame, and it's it's the yeah, same thing right. they did with the Iraq War in a in a in a in a way of looking at it that everyone who was part of the establishment at that time who's still around has kind of just pre- has has really relied on the public's you know lack of attention and lack of memory about this to just wipe their hands of it. And they're doing the same thing when it comes to China in this one. So I I really think that when it comes to some of this anti-Asian sentiment that we're seeing, it's top down. It's fucking top down in nature. In oh, that, 100%. In that, you know, the public consciousness has been willfully kept in the dark. They treat us like mushrooms. You keep us in the dark and you feed us shit. Um, and then people are, you know, feeling some degree of economic anxiety. People are feeling some degree of coercion. And, you know, if it's some idiot like Trump or if it's even the Democrats saying, no, no, we're also going to be tough on China, you know, you you just internalize some of this shit. And people think that, like, um, you know, these are things that uh, you have to willfully teach yourself. No, you can, like, take them in subconsciously and then they manifest like this. And I'm not saying it makes it any better. In fact, it makes it so much worse. Yeah. The fact that it can be so under the surface that makes it like deceivingly more dangerous, in my opinion. Right, right. And, and this isn't to say that I'm shilling for China on this one. You know, there may be some serious concerns that we can have about China, right? But I just don't see why America, the country that is trying to make the throw from the three point line, and like we, our pants fell off. To steal a joke from Felix Peterman, right? That's what we did as a country, that's and like then the best you know, way to like describe everything that's you know been go- been happening in our country. Yeah, credit to at by your logic for that one. I I totally plagiarized that, but <laughs> but I mean that that's literally it. It's like you know we we willfully like fucking gave it up. We gave up the game, and then we're like, hey, it's China's fault. Yeah. I- and then we blame, and then we blame uh, Asian Americans who have absolutely nothing to do with the Chinese government. Right, and like, right. <laughs> and it's like, um, and my, oh my, does that have a history in itself in America, especially towards Asian communities? Right. It's what it's like exactly what they did to the Japanese Americans right. Right, during Japanese American internment. Right, right, and I, I think like you know, we're gonna eventually touch on the history of you know this anti-asian sentiment but i think it's useful if we apply a bit of class critique um to this oh absolutely because you know i I think what's made me a little numb about some of this too is like some of the critique is so devoid of a class analysis or so devoid of why the exploitation was done in the first place like it's one thing to say America uh, has a racist past. That's th- that, that that's like you know the one point question on an exam. But yeah, understanding but like, that this racism was applied mostly arbitrarily, but in varying degrees to different populations, to enrich the same group of um, corporate oligarchs that we've had. Um, that is a that's a critique that's always missing, and that's I feel like that's something that me and you can get into today. So yeah, one hundred percent. We can all we can get into how like the you know especially like the media, you know who which don't serve us, which don't serve the people, they serve 
you know, obviously the corporate interests, how they intentionally twist um, stories and incidences that happen to, you know, purposefully portray a certain, like, biased point of view for their audience, you know, kind of confirming, conf- confirmation bias, essentially. Yeah, yeah, that, there's that to an extent. And I think really that, you know, we don't have a press that uh, meaningfully challenges power. Mm-hmm. Right, right. What, yep. And I, I and that, that's something that I find, you know, is lacking in the discourse, so to speak, about um, social justice is that, you know, it's one thing to label individuals as racist. It's one thing to talk about uh, racism as an isolated concept, but not talking about who it serves, that to me is dangerous. Yeah, and I think it's very easy to fall, um, you know, to fall down that lot or that hole, if you will, um, you know, especially like if you don't open up your mind to how other populations live, mm-hmm. you know, it's very easy to, you know, be in your like kind of closed minded bubble, so to speak. Right. Right. And I mean, and that's where we're getting into some of this, uh, these, some of these, some of this garbage of, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure who's fucking pitting black people and Asians on Twitter. I'm pretty sure. Oh that. yeah. That's... Any anyone tweeting that like, oh, Asian people ain't showing enough, uh, sh- aren't showing up enough for black people, or black people aren't showing enough out enough for Asians. That's that's CIA shit. You're getting paid and, by and, the CIA. It's like literally, I have rebuttals for both of those statements. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just like, I, I like, come on, dude. Like, or whoever it was. Like, come I don't care who said it. Pur- they're just trying to purposefully like create division, bro already well and, and that's really it because Between two if, marginalized groups and that's why i'm saying the class uh component matters because you know the commonality and we'll talk about this i mean i guess let's start with the history here right is that it's it goes without saying that america committed an original sin with uh expropriating land from the natives and using uh, black people as slaves, mm-hmm. but and it's like and of course those crimes are rooted in a racist uh, worldview. But what does that do? Taking land from people means that you have all this like property now that you can like exploit to create to gain wealth. And if you don't pay people to work. Now you're like doubling your wealth as as it grows. You know what I mean? And uh, th- that's one thing that, you know, slave owners would say to justify themselves is, well, I have to uh, build their shelters and feed them. But that's pennies on the dime compared to the Dude, profits they, they were so, making. Yeah, they made so much money. Like people have to realize how profitable cotton was back in the day. Cotton, sugar. I mean, all of these were cash like, crops. Yep. These aren't even really things that, like, people need for their nutrition, so to speak. But, like, because of how profitable the industry was and how rough the work is, they couldn't get um, white laborers to do it because it's such, like, grueling work. You would have to pay them, like, a higher wage to get them to even do it, right? And you have these people who you've stolen from the motherland to, like, uh, expropriate their labor and, you know, dehumanize them. You can extract oh, wealth absolutely. out of them so much fucking faster. 
And that actually is like some of the tensions that like existed at the founding of the country, right? Is that white laborers kind of saw the writing on the wall that, well, if they can turn these people into slaves and have them work for nothing, does that mean we're next? Or conversely, does that mean uh, people with the money who, or who we work for? can replace us with people who, who, you know, can't be paid or now have an incentive to pay us less. And there was solidarity, um, like with things like Shay's Rebellion and things like... Yeah, yep, Shay's Rebellion, yep. Right, is that ultimately... The indentured servants and the slaves, um, was that when they teamed up against the the merchants or the merchant class? Right, and that's, that's, that's the so thing. That's the class analysis that is missing from some of these discussions. Is that you have both of these people being exploited. Granted, they're being exploited to different degrees. But, you know, it's clear that this wealth that the merchant class is making is not just one of like, oh, capitalist business success. No, no. They're getting one over on people. One over on people by fooling others and one over on people by like literally enslaving people. And that's where, you know, what unites... um, the laborers and the slaves in this case is the fact that, well, we're not going to fucking take this agreement anymore. And that's the similar situation that the first wave of Asian immigrants uh, found themselves in with when it came to the construction of the railroads, right? Yep. Is they came over to California and the West Coast and basically could be paid pennies on the dollar for their uh, labor, right? And this is and this was hard labor. You're out in the Rat fucking breaking. desert hellscape that is California. This is yeah. before San Francisco and L- L.A. and all that cool shit, right? Like desert fucking hellscape. You are like toiling day in, day out with a fucking hammer trying to lay this fucking rail. And, you know, these white laborers are noticing that either their wages are uh, dropping because – if you can pay the Chinese less, then they'll pay the white people less or they're not getting hired uh, because, again, you have this class of people that can be paid pennies on the dollar. And those are the tensions that were then exploited. And when you see a lot of this um, uh, anti or this white sentiment against Asians in those in those early days when it was the violence, when it was the exclusion acts, these were encouraged so to speak by the powers that be and i don't mean that in a conspiratorial sense but i mean this in the sense of you know the railroad industry has no incentive to pay its workers fairly under capitalism or under whatever system you want to call what that was back in the day right it was profit and you can make more profits by getting one over on people which is not paying them and saying they don't deserve the money that's that really they really exploited the um the racial um what you call it the racial the, tension because you know yeah, the uh, racial tension for for profit <laughs> because ultimately speaking like me as like That's... a neutral observer in this situation it's like well it's wrong to both groups you know what i mean yeah 100 yep because i mean because the white workers were also you know not were also getting not their fair share right right like it's one thing to say they're racist and you know that's not deniable that's fucking true that they they were having these prejudiced opinions against these these asian people too but 
they weren't exactly getting a better deal either. And yeah, that's the difference exactly. between, you know, some of these academic discussions uh, pertaining to race that kids have in college these days compared to like, you know, like a hard read of what's going on is no one is getting a good deal but the people pulling uh, one over on the people they're, they're you know, exploiting. Yep, 100%. And then that's a very small group of people, guys. Again, when Bernie's talking about the 1%, this is not like uh... – <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not innuendo. This is not a metaphor. This is it is the reality that the people who hold capital, the people who hold the wealth in this society, is that one percent. And at the time, possibly even today, I would argue that these racial tensions are exploited to prevent people from realizing that the wool is being pulled over their eyes. Because they didn't want workers to unionize. They didn't want workers. So, you know, you do all this shit. And then you get the exclusionary acts. So there was like a a ban on immigration. Is that correct? I think yeah, that was so part the of it. Chinese, yeah, so the 18, well, I think it was like 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, it was the first time that America banned a group of people based on race and based on their class. So Chinese laborers. Right. Um, and I also... Also wasn't part – I don't know if it was part of the law or if it was part of the custom, but a lot of jobs prevented uh, Asian men from taking up certain kinds of employments, often what was considered a man's job, like working on the railroad, right? Yeah. So, and often had to take up jobs uh, you know, as laundromats, as uh, restaurant uh, workers. And that's where we get some of those stereotypes that persist today of Asian men – uh, lacking masculine features in some regard. Yeah, yeah, and um, the whole um, model mind—that all ties into the model, right? Because they, and... you know, they're not competing with the white men. They're, you know, they're doing their own thing, and that's also, or I think we can also get into the sexualization of Asian women in America, right? Because a lot of times, uh, the only employment, especially because it was more legal and not as frowned upon out west, was um, prostitution and sex yeah, and work. We're talking like the late eighteen hundred, early nineteen hundred times, like the Chinatown, like time, like right when the Chinatowns were first opening up, I believe. Right, and like they were segregated yeah. into these neighborhoods, and that's where we mm-hmm. get the whole, you know, the concept of a Chinatown, right? But, and that's the yep. thing is because Asian women had to take up jobs in sex work, um. You know they get they get fetishized in the in that regard as well, and that's where yeah, yeah. I that's where I see the origin of some of these stereotypes is in those exclusionary acts. Um, they needed to take these people uh, down a peg economically, and the white working class was you know blind to the fact that they didn't need to compete with these people. They needed to you know have some common ground. But it was difficult because already there were these uh, economic uh, or these economized racial tensions combined with the fact that newer immigrants uh, still needed time to assimilate and, you know, learn the language and all that. It just it just exacerbated in unnecessary fucking ways. Let's let's maybe talk about the problematic thing, which is. um some of these bad uh, these bad takes that I was talking to you about, right? And, oh yeah, and um, 
it's kind of like the overall narrative I'm getting from this is that uh, there hasn't been uh, intraracial solidarity and um, that people feel like uh, they're losing the spotlight. And I don't, I think the first part is an accurate uh, read of the situation. I think there definitely needs to be more done uh, when it comes to solidarity, right? Yes, 100%. I think in the U.S., like, um, there hasn't been enough work on the side, on the, like, POC, minority, whatever you want to call it, solidarity front. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, though, however, um, we, like, Asian Americans were the biggest group to show support to be, uh, towards the Black Lives Matters protest, you know, right. this past summer. Well, I mean, these um, tensions so I, didn't come out of nowhere, right? And I know that, I think, the last time you were on, you were talking about um, some of the tensions between black people and Korean people uh, during the Rodney King riots and things like that. Mm-hmm. So these tensions didn't come out of nowhere, but they are historically rooted. And I think it is the fact that because Asian people had more access to gain uh, property and start businesses and things like that. Like, I don't know if there was heard... a lot of resentment there in, 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 it's, in, it's... In, the, in the black communities. And it's, I under, and it's understandable, you know? Yeah. It, it, it definitely but is. But then again, but then again, the Koreans, you have to think about it also, especially in those working class communities, like they were all, they also weren't getting the best deals either, man. Right, right, and that, and that's and, you know, it all goes back to what we were talking about before. Right, is that you know, ultimately, none of us are getting the best deal, and I think that of the people of you know our community who hold bigoted opinions or don't see a point in having solidarity with BLM or the larger um, push for civil rights. Um, it just goes to show that you're willing to be a sucker. It goes to show that, mm-hmm. you know, you're willing to take the pat on the back and be called a model minority when, you know, in reality, the deal you got, uh, this little shitty suburban home, your little business, uh, you know, sending your kids to a nice school district. I mean, it's predicated on the fact that they were able to bring, uh, you know, at least for South Asians, right? They were able to bring us over in bulk during the tech boom. Yeah. And now, well, my like, parents came a little bit before, but yes, I understand where you're coming from. Right, right. And, like, you know, that's, that's what that was predicated on. And that, you know, that also, like, manifested in some of the, uh, 9-11 era violence where people were just like well they came and they took our jobs and if some all, all it takes is some like uh willfully uh malicious guy to say well hey it's these people who did it not not us who fucking gutted the system that had jobs for you and, that- and let's not forget how much the media exacerbated the islamophobia that we've seen post 9-11 let's right. not forget Right. And like, and that's the thing. It's the same mechanism that they used uh, when it came to like propping up Islamophobia. It's the same mechanism that they used to pro- uh, prop up this recent wave of Sinophobia, right? Oh, 100%. It's all the same system of white supremacy that we see coming from the corporate interests. Right. And th- th- that's really what it comes down to is like, uh, I'm not sure if it's, I mean, it, it's been said by multiple historical figures, whether it's like Lyndon Johnson saying his his version of it. Which is, you know, if you get the uh, 
poorest white man to feel better than a colored person, then you have his loyalty when it comes to elections. Or conversely, I think it was like John C. Calhoun and Henry Clay who said shit like, um, you know, this whole uh, system of slavery is predicated on making sure that uh, white people of lower social classes don't wise up on the fact that this system is for the uh, profitability of the aristocratic white class. I'm paraphrasing both of those quotes heavily, so please correct me if you if you're keeping keeping track, right? But no, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, those quotes sound right. But it's like again, like add... this isn't even like conspiracy theory or like me like uh, trying to read too deeply into it. Like there were several mask off moments where people explain this is how the system works, and I I think you know where I'm at right um, is. I'm not really interested in competing for attention with other people. I think this is a uh, this is a system that does not distribute resources fairly. Uh, people don't get the product of their work that they deserve. This is a system where justice is not delivered uh, for the victims, be they black or Asian. And I don't think that we need to stand in uh, competition with anyone. We're all hurting. Yeah, we're all hurting. This is a fight that we can all participate in. Right, right. And this is just something that, like, I'm, I'm, I'm with anyone who's willing to, you know, speak about this clearly. That this this system of justice that we have in this country does not favor people, uh, whether they're fighting back against unfair police practices, whether they're the victims of mass shootings, whether they're, um even trying to fight back against unfair corporate practices there's no justice in this system for any of us regardless of the color of our skin regardless of our national origin regardless of whether we were born here or whether we immigrated here or whether we were brought here against our will it was this is this is not a system that works it's a system where we're kept willfully misinformed and uh it, it's for the enrichment of the same 1% Yep. Yep, and the and the lack of what the lack of uh, critical thinking in our society as well has has led to where we are today, I believe. Yeah. Otherwise, I I'm I'm going to be honest with you, man, like this is just such a emotionally numb moment for me, right? That all this fucking senseless violence keeps fucking happening, whether it's the fucking Atlanta shooting, whether it's uh, black people being shot in the streets by police, whether it's, uh, I mean, families being held up uh, at the border. At the border, kids in cages. It's all the fucking violence we do in Syria. I I mean, this is a, a, a violent society. This is a, a society that worships violence in a sense. And we're all getting a bit number every fucking day. And it's dangerous, bro. It's becoming a uh, hyper normal. Right. Right. And it's like the only um, way to stay realistic is just to accept it. That there's nothing you can really do about it. Or if you can, Hey, vote for Biden. Come on, Jack. And it's, <laughs> it's like, what what is the end what where does this end 
or how or where do we where do we even begin to progress or how do we even begin to progress i don't know these are hard these are tough questions and if someone has an answer for you i i, I bet like if someone thinks they have a def, like a definitive answer for you i think they would be lying you know yeah yeah i mean this is this is one of those things where I mean, we started with, you know, this this shooting and then we talked about, you know, some of this racial history. And I think we're just coming back or at least um, every episode I've done to this point, right, has been like it just goes back to the fact that we live in a fundamentally dysfunctional society. Oh, 100 percent. And I mean, I think that's the root of a lot of the issues that our society is facing today, you know, very fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know, man. I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, it, it is bro, I mean, I there's a very there's this famous quote from this French movie that I really enjoy. It's called La Haine. I highly recommend mm-hmm. uh you and your listeners watch it if you want to um it's a movie about uh life in the French banlieue, which is pretty much what they say is like their version of like the french like inner city except they call them suburbs um over there it's yeah bonlieu does where... translate directly to suburb oh uh, yeah yeah so um it's pretty much where their arab and um their black and arab population majority live in these bonlieus and it's a movie about like just their day-to-day the three friends there's a white guy an arab guy and a black guy and like their day-to-day like lives in the bonlieus and just how often the police they encounter the police bro it's crazy um it is a big problem in france too on top of it being a big problem in the u.s um it, it's crazy bro i highly recommend everyone watch the movie but there's a quote in the movie where it's like a society on the way down hold up let me look it up it was a really good quote it was oh yeah it's it's a, a society on its way down, and as it falls, it keeps telling itself, so far, so good, so far, so good. It's not how you fall that matters. It's how you land. Or- yeah, I think that's prescient. I think that's a very accurate descriptor of the moment we're in. And, and that movie came out in the 90s. In the, <laughs> the 90s. I mean, that's yeah. that's where a lot of this got solidified, right? I mean, that's when you know we had the Clinton crime bills and the fucking... Uh, the real escalation of the police state as a concept. And uh, I mean, that's, you know, the golden age, so to speak, of neoliberal capitalism and what they call the end of history. So, you know, why do people look back at the 90s like a time of with a wave of and like an aura of nostalgia? Like, have you noticed that, too? I, I think and that's funny because, like, I was born in the 90s. So, like, that's when my life began is when. Yeah, um, and same here. <laughs> it's it's when, like, again, so there was this guy, Francis Fukuyama. I fucking don't know what he does to this day, right? But he has that famous uh, adage where it's um, this is the end of history. And I think it was into the context of, you know, the United States is now the global hegemon. The Soviet Union has been destroyed. Uh, the U.S. financial market is is fucking booming and it's only growing and growing and growing. And I think, you know, if you were as out of touch uh, then as you are now, in the context of being the global elites, right, Um, you would think that this is the end of history. You would think that um, 
this is the end state of humanity is just fucking like continue to make the fucking numbers go up, continue to pull the money out of the bank. And we've gone through like how many mini and major recessions since then? How oh, much fucking eco- like how much fucking ecological damage we fucking seen? How many major fucking catastrophes? Uh, <laughs> and it's only it's only happening more and more and it's like what do you even do yeah i think i was having this very recent realization right of you know when people talk about apocalypse or they talk about climate apocalypse they they talk about it like it's something that's going to happen and then it has that mad max aesthetic and all the fallout shit right but i think the fallout shit in a way that um if you want fukuyama to be right i would say we're in the apocalypse now (laughs) We live in an increasingly atomized society. People are so fucking alienated. Loneliness is a fucking epidemic, and it it, it can affect literally anyone. Uh, People are working more for less. And, you know, these kind of resentment-based crimes or this kind of just dysfunctional fucking uh, violence, whether it's the Christchurch shooter in uh, New Zealand or the fucking Aurora, Colorado guy or this new fucker in Atlanta. Um, The dysfunction is here. We don't have to wait for Mad Max to accept that we're in an apocalyptic time. I personally think we're in it now. And this is the yeah. time to rebuild. This is not the time to worry about the future. This is the time to rebuild. That's my look at this. And that sounds radical. That sounds fucking crazy. And I'm, I have no way to go about this. I'm just one guy with a shitty little podcast with 40 followers, right? Uh, but I think it's it's something that is worth discussing. It's something worth considering that none of this is is worth the paper it's printed on. Yeah, that's that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. That's a really good way of putting it. It is. It's senseless and it's a sign of society's dysfunction. And right. And I think, you know, like... Sign I, of an unhealthy society, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the stupid way I have to look at this is... Uh, I'm not, I mean, I'm not even sure. Like, I, I want to say it, but it's like... How do we get people to, like, get out of their own heads and like actually interact with people interact with the fucking world around them especially when they are coerced economically especially when you know they work these long hours and have all these things because like how do you tell someone um who you know works 12 hours a day and is like up to the neck with bills hey uh go out and vote man like how do you how do you even convince them to care yeah, I mean, it's really, I mean, and the system does that purposefully, too. Yeah, yeah, it's just, you know, it, it's all done purposefully. Yeah, I don't think that uh, the monsters of our time are coming in the future. I think they're here now. I think, you know, this is antithetical to the human condition. I think that, like I said, you know, last episode about Capybara Mindset, I think solidarity is really the only way we're going to get through this and whether it's, you know, stopping this wave of anti-Asian violence or whether it's uh, building a more equitable society or whether it's, you know, turning back the tide on 
ecological damage. It has to happen hand in hand. And if all we can do is at least talk, let's at least talk as friends. And I'm glad I got to do that with you, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me. No, that was, it was, that's um, I, I really hope that, um, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of false, you know, propaganda, if you will, about Americans and American cultures about, and about how, you know, we're all united in our Americanness. But I really hope that in the future that that's just more than propaganda and that actually becomes like a cultural backbone. Right. Like society. let's not talk about the melting pot as just, you know, numbers on a table. Let's actually talk about the melting pot as, you know, the way people... what's actually going on. Yeah. 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 Like, you know, people talk about it like it exists. What if it actually did? I think that would be cool. You know what I mean? If you and know, I don't know the melting pot phenomenon. It's, it's accurate because it kind of, you know, it reinforces the um, the American custom of assimilation and how you know you kind of have to like right. You know, they're blending the you're blending in all the parts that make you different with other cultures and other people and the parts that make them different, and you're just blending them all together. Right? Yeah. Is that what you get from the melting pot? I mean, that's you know the the vision they sold us as kids, right? Is that yeah, you get to. You get to look different. You get to, you know, stink up the place with your Indian food at the lunch hall, but no <laughs> oh, one talks man. smack about you for it. I guess that's what they, you know what I mean? That's what that's what I thought yeah, it was. Bro. But, you know, I think the reality is, you know, when especially cultural liberals point to the melting pot, it's not a concept that exists yet. Because I don't think we have a universally defined American culture. I don't think... That even if it existed, it uh, has accommodations for everyone. And there's some hard questions that have to be answered for that kind of thing to happen. And that, that takes generations of work. Tough conversation. Yeah. And it's not going to take a night or a day to, you know, uncover it the It takes realities. generations. It takes generations. <laughs> yeah. And it's one it of those takes... things that, there, like I said, that there's t- uh, tensions. I guess the best we can do, at least for now, is like to mitigate those tensions somewhat with class solidarity. 100% I mean because that's that's where I feel like a lot of um, common ground can be found within the populace right right and I that's what I'm saying is you know when you really take a class analysis uh, to things more unites us than separates us yeah 100% and you know if we look at this at a further uh, Marxist analysis you know there's only two classes yep the ruling class and the working class. There is uh, no middle class or lower middle, upper middle, all that bullshit. Nope. Nope. And I mean, I guess I guess that's the immediate solution for now. <laughs> class consciousness, try to build it, and just being mm-hmm. there for people. I think that's really all we got right now. Yeah. Yeah. I I guess that's our time, man. Um, yeah, I, I don't got anything else. I, I, really, I really don't got anything else <laughs> aside from, you know, um, it's, it's really a painful moment. Um, it's a confusing moment and it's one that, uh, a lot of people, I mean, myself included, right. Is we jumped up to talk about it, but with very little solutions. And I think it's one of those things that you have to commit to humanity as a whole. You don't have to, you, it's not committing to action. It's com- it's committing to act for people. That's how I look at this. 
And can you further expand on how, you know, us or your listeners could do that in their, and apply that to their lives and to their daily lives? It's, it's rough, right? Because I'm still learning, too. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I figured, you know. Yeah. I'm, I, I mean, really, you know, be in touch with people in your life. Um, re- read more about um, class analysis and class solidarity. Um, of course, you know, there's a, there's a treasure trove of this kind of information uh, in books and in free literature and podcasts. You can always like broaden your um, understanding with that, right? But I think um, the prescription, if there is one, is probably the same one I had in episode one and episode two, which is uh, find what matters to you that genuinely you know is something that you're not only passionate about but is something that you feel like you could make uh positive strides for in your community and that whether that was the community farming angle of it or whether that's um you know something that you can engage other people with and form some real you know human contact and relationships with that's the first step i think the first step is to fight loneliness (laughs) It's yeah, it's 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 such yeah. a it's such a shitty solution I have, but that's all I got. That's really all I got. The only way to you know to know that you've been gaslit, I guess, is to talk to someone who's a neutral person in the situation. That's a that's what a friend is. That's what um, you know someone you can trust is. Is there you know the person who can really check what's going on and be like, yeah, that sounds like bullshit, man. <laughs> That, yeah. the, because that, that's ultimately what, you know, the idea of class solidarity that Marx was speaking about was, is that people trade notes at the end of the day and can say like, huh, your work conditions are shit. Mine are also shit, too. I wonder why the bosses are up to. And like, you know, that's where the ideas bounce. It's not just um, the podcasters like me who like, you know, talk at length or the theoreticians, although that stuff has its merits. I think it is like the people who it's happening to just talking to each other and being like, huh, that is fishy. I mean, that's kind of what we see happening in Bessemer, right? In Alabama. Right, right, right. And uh, the fun thing about uh, Bessemer too, that I was actually hearing about is this is a town with a union history. And we, we like to view unions as like this kind of Midwest or East coast phenomenon. And they're being mostly white, but um Bessemer has a history of being a union town and a black union, a black union town. And I think, you know, it's proximity to Birmingham, Alabama and Dr. King's involvement there too. I mean, this is, this is the nexus of class politics and uh, civil rights. And, you know, these things don't separate the two. Yeah. Yeah. I really don't like this um, assumption that people have that, left-wing politics is this uh niche or like very uh white male phenomenon because here are you know two of us of course you know we're cis men but we are south asian and we're trying to you know keep an open mind and really try to reach out to people who aren't like us in in this in this endeavor and if you look back at history and how forgetful the public public consciousness has been made we forget about towns like bessemer so yeah. I'm proud of, you know, these guys for uh, not only, you know, keeping the tradition alive, but really taking a fight against uh, 
the really exploitative actions that Amazon has. If I can make a request, if you want to show them solidarity, you know, there's hard ways you can support them in their union efforts. But if you can't do anything, just just try not to buy from Amazon right now. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely I haven't bought anything from them in a while. So Yeah, low key once you realize how many places have the same shit, it's <laughs> Yeah. And like dude, they their quality of their products isn't even up to par either. Well, you know, a lot of the times they know they can under you know under, undercut your quality, if you will. Right, right. I mean the thing about Amazon, too, is it isn't even necessarily the products at times. It's just the fact that they have the delivery system and the infrastructure. That's the yeah. pro- That's the profitable thing about this, really. But at the expense right, of labor. Right, at the right. expense and of that's... Well, that's the thing about Amazon, isn't it? You pull one over on the, the employees and say, well, hey, no one else is going to hire you. Oftentimes in these towns where Amazon sets up, they end up becoming the biggest job uh, producer in the area. And if you're, you know, don't have the means to move, but you'd like to stay there and, you know, have the means to contribute for your family, you take the deal and it's a bad one. But even for the customers, too, it's like, okay, you get like instant shipping. Okay, at what cost? You get these shitty little products, you get like the convenience at the expense of the workers and at the expense of you, too. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if, yep. If you take that analysis and, look at it yeah at the expense of all of us right 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 so if i can also offer a corollary to my uh you know to my solution is don't be a sucker yeah don't be a sucker get in, get informed i'll critically think about where we are at, at as a society right right because if someone's profiting someone's getting screwed and it's most likely me and you <laughs> yeah all right. Um, any other closing thoughts you've got before we uh, wrap up? No. Um, I would just like to say once again, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Adi. Um, it's always a wonderful time talking with you and you know picking your brain about where we're at with society and you know all whatever it is else that we're thinking about at this current moment in time. No, it's always good to talk to you, bud. Same, man. Same. Well, if you'd like to support the show, um, give us a follow on Twitter at, at Pod Greenhouse or follow us on Facebook. Uh, the biggest thing you can do to support the show right now is give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Not sure what that does, but it boosts up the algorithm. Um, the algo. The algo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but really, um, I'd like to engage the audience and ask for some feedback. Um I'm really happy with um, how varied our listenership has been. I'm uh, surprised that I have what little following I do have. Um, but I'd like to see, you know, in this kind of bloated podcast marketplace, what you'd like to hear from for me. Or if you like what we're doing, um, you can email us at greenhousegaslightingpod at gmail.com or DM us on any of the uh, social media apps. And also talk about potential topics you'd like for us to get into so yeah with that i'm gonna sign off take care zarif take care guys all right yep take care green uh take care pod take take care listeners